stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome back to Administrative Static with Mark Genoweth and John Vecchioni. John and I are going to, to jump into this FBI search of uh, former President Donald Trump's residence at Mar-a-Lago, uh, and and we have some we have some thoughts uh, about uh, about what has transpired. Now, this I, I'm going to I guess preface this by saying the New Civil Liberties Alliance is not involved. We there's no litigation ongoing here that we've jumped into uh, or anything uh, like that. Uh, but John has some so happens to have some expertise in this area based on some uh, of work that he did before he uh, got to, to NCLA, and, uh, and and I have a soapbox, so uh, I have some thoughts uh, to share on this uh, as well. But uh, but John, the, the the first thing that jumped out at me as 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 I started uh, as I started hearing about this uh, was that this has never happened before, and I'm just worried. Uh, and I said this in a in an email to a friend, and then and then I've seen it a couple times on the news since then, or on opinion shows since then, that we've crossed the Rubicon here, and that's really what I'm that I'm worried about. Once you go down this road, it becomes easier for subsequent administrations to go down this road, and and what stops us from, uh, you know, what what stops the next administration from doing a raid on the Obama compound or the Biden compound or you know what 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 have you. I'm just, this just seems like something that didn't need to happen. And uh, for the White House to say that they didn't know about it, I'm not sure what, well, first of all, I'm not sure whether to believe that. And I'm not sure if I do believe it, whether that makes it better or worse, because I would sure hope that the president would weigh in on something this uh, momentous. Well, they're also leaking, I think, that Garland didn't sign off on it. I've seen some leaks of that. We don't know what happened, Mark. We right? don't. We don't. So, I, I withhold judgment on whether this was justified, not justified, uh, but I'll tell you this. Because the, the search warrant's still sealed, right. too. And, and Trump hasn't released it. He could release it. He but, can't. It's sealed. Oh, the, really? The judge sealed it. Yeah, that's, there's some sort of national security oh, rationale so or something. It, and it, a couple of people have sued to, okay. uh, to get it out. And that's right. The judge just asked. He wants to, start to respond within X amount of days. So, but so I don't have any. I don't know what's going on there, but I do know about the national the, the National Records Act. Okay? okay, so I was the counsel of record in Judicial Watch v. Kerry because when I was a cause of action, our case was combined with that one, and the whole case was on uh, Hillary Clinton's emails while she was at the State Department. Oh, and, uh, now why is that relevant here, John? It's relevant <laughs> because what here's what was not done. What, what the whole case was about when it went up to the D.C. Court of Appeals, where I argued before Kavanaugh, among others, was what did the National Archives have to do to show that the, um, that the records were irretrievably lost? All right? You have to either get the records back or show you can't. That, that's what the statute says. But what did they actually have to do? And Judge Boesberg had said, look, they, uh, it looks like They've searched all their archives. They've asked her about them, and that's all they had to do, pretty much. And I'm I'm not doing justice to his opinion, sure. which I'm shortening. 
But so they didn't have to let the right. FBI in. So, all right. So I went up there. I, I went up to the D.C. Circuit and I said, Your Honor, they haven't shown that these records are in the Marianas Trench. They haven't. I said, and, and this has never been adjudicated in the last 35 years because here's what happens in Washington. I go, I leave with some stuff in my briefcase. And my boss says, you know, you can't, we're missing those papers. And, and at the soccer game, he's, yeah, I'll bring them to the kid's soccer game and you can have them back. And then, and then it goes back. That's how it happens. That's because it happens every day, but cases don't happen every day. Cause you give the stuff back. I don't know that they've asked for stuff back or asked to go do an inventory or any of that. Well, I can tell you, I saw, I saw an interview and again, I don't have independent confirmation of this, but I can tell you, I saw an interview with Christina Bob, who is, who is Trump's uh, attorney. And she indicated that the FBI had already been on site in June and that Trump was there and invited them to look at anywhere they wanted and to look at anything they wanted. And they had already been to the room in the basement where the boxes were. And they, they'd, already, they'd already seen anything that they wanted to see at that time. And so this, had, this came up. And so I did, I did both the Hillary Clinton emails. And then it turned out that uh, Colin Powell, as Secretary of State, had used a private email, you know, AOL, something like that. And so we had also sued on <laughs> not, not those. Not to date him or anything. Right, exactly. And we'd also sued um, to see what happened to those emails, because these are all FOIA cases. Basically, you do a Freedom of Information Act, and then you go see what happens to documents, and, and, or you get them, one or the other. And so uh, this is Judicial Watch's stock and trade. Right. That's true. The cause of action, action did a lot. We did a lot of it. And, yeah. and so what happened was so Trent McCotter, who was a brand new uh, Trump appointee, and I think it was maybe his first case, said, well, listen, uh, the State Department has shown that these AOL, uh, they, we, they've checked with AML. They've, they, they got cooperation from AOL. It says, we don't have anything that old. You're suing 12 years after this. I assure you, AOL does not save your emails when you get rid of your account for 12, 12 uh, years. So those were gone. That they had they had met their burden in the D.C. in the Judicial Watch v. Kerry. They hadn't yet met their burden. And you know how they met their burden? They eventually it goes back down to Bozberg and they sealed an FBI declaration in front of Bozberg. And I said, you can't. I, I'm the lawyer on the other side and I wasn't allowed to see it. And Boesberg wrote an opinion. It, it's kind of funny. He goes, I have no idea why this thing's sealed. He said, he said, I have now reviewed this and I don't see anything that's not available in the newspapers. And I think we and then we we moved to unseal it and he unsealed it. But it was it was but they showed that they everything they'd done, they'd used a subpoena. They'd done, they had subpoenaed, but they didn't raid her house. They didn't. Well, the thing that, that jumped out at me, they were talking about how they broke into Trump's safe. I remember that, that supposedly all the emails that had been erased with the bleach bit were on some sort of device that were in the office of Hillary Clinton's attorney. And he said it was in his safe at Covington. The FBI didn't. Williams and Connolly. Oh, it was Williams and Connolly. Ought to be. It's, okay. it's sure. It's okay. my old professor. Oh, all right. Uh, so wrong firm. But, uh, but it was in the safe in this attorney's office. The FBI didn't go break into the law firm and break into the safe and grab a copy of of, of those emails. No, they didn't get a warrant. And, and so it, it is, it is interesting, but the fact that we did all these cases and the FBI did do something with Clinton email and they've laid out an affidavit, which I didn't, I didn't know we were going to talk about this. So I didn't have the, I didn't go get the affidavit, but they laid out everything they did to show that it was irretrievably lost. And it was irretrievably lost as you're saying about bleach bit, but they had to show that one of the things you have to do in the under FOIA, the National Archives does have to show what they did. 
And if they gave it to the, the, they're supposed to refer a missing record to the Attorney General of the United States. And that's how this whole thing got started. Now, I don't know uh, what's in, I, I don't know if it's justified, non-justified. I mean, I, I, I would think when you do something like this, you, you have a good reason. I hope we haven't deteriorated to the point where we'll, we'll get someone for jaywalking when we don't like them. Well, my fear is, John, and, and as you said, we don't know, we have no basis to form a conclusion uh, other, other than uh, the FBI certainly seems to have a bee in its bonnet where it comes to, to the former president. My fear is that they, that they knew or at least had, uh, and I heard on the way in this morning that there may have been a tipster involved, they had reason to believe that there were some documents that hadn't been turn turned over. A tipster at Mar-a-Lago, supposedly. Yeah, the, the internet joke is that it's barren, and, and <laughs> it's just he's 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 just playing on his Xbox, safes in the back. <laughs> well, you know whether there's a tipster or not, the the idea would be that that there there may have been some some documents uh, that uh, that should be turned over, and maybe would have been turned over uh, upon request or negotiation or what have you. Uh, but that this gave them the ability to go in and just seize a whole bunch of documents and see what there is to see and sort of use it as a fishing expedition. I hope to God that the FBI and the DOJ don't think it's a good idea to launch a fishing expedition on a former president over something as trifling as this appears to be. I hope. But yeah. And, and on the other hand, if they do have something serious, well, we should figure we should find that out. I mean, I do know they have all these protocols and I'm sure James Comey, another guy who I, who I'm <laughs> on the cover of the New York post on that one. Uh, but, um, cause he took records, right. And he leaked them. But, but, um, I really do hope they, they have something serious. Even if they don't bring a case, we, we got to know they've got to break their protocols eventually when it's all, if they're not going to sue, they've got to put it all in a bow because it does cause, um, it, it causes a deterioration in people's belief in, in, in our institutions. And I, you can't have a, you can't have a double standard no. in the justice system where uh, you are or are not investigated over potential felonious conduct based on the party that you belong to. Correct. That cannot be the and, way that things are and in you this know, country or Klein, it won't last very long. I've been worried about it. You know, Klein Smith, who's the guy who forged, the um, FISA. Yeah. And got a slap on the and, hand for it. And the DC bar, he's back practicing law, the DC bar, not in Michigan. Michigan says no, two years and you got to reapply. DC did not. And, and that really, I mean, that shook my, you know, me, I, I don't really buy that, that there's a huge conspiracy against everybody's stuff. I, I don't, I, I'm, I'm internally very antagonistic to it. Unless there's a UFO involved. <laughs> no, exactly. But I can't watch what's happening with Kleinsmith. It just, it's a data point that bothers me because is he let off because they, the DC bar doesn't like the Durham investigation or something? I mean, I don't know, but it looks bad. And this looks right now, it looks sketchy, but I'm with, with reserving judgment. Well, uh, to me, the reason that one looks sketchy is because we know what happened. We know <laughs> he forged a document and he presented it to a court as though uh, for a reason to get a warrant to go after the president. I mean, uh, that's that's of an innocent man. Yes. Yes. Exactly. I always call him that. Uh, I have always called him the most innocent man in Washington because he didn't get a lawyer. <laughs> he, they had everything. He kept on going to talk to the FBI and he never he didn't get a lawyer to the very end. So that's, yeah, that, uh, that's uh, that that's very distressing. And uh, you know, so as, as we keep saying, we don't we don't know what's going on, but 
at least that gives you some sense of of where we're coming from. Why we think there's a double standard here. And I imagine we'll have an opportunity to talk about this more. Sharon Fast-Gustafson has joined us. Um, she is the past general counsel of the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. We'll probably call it the EEOC so that we can get other words in. Um, welcome to the program. Thank you. Happy to be here. And uh, she's now in solo practice, but I think we're going to be discussing the EEOC's uh, approach to religious liberty um, discrimination. And could you could you tell our audience, what is the EOC? The EEOC is the United States Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. This agency is tasked with um, keeping discrimination out of the workplace, discrimination based on race, sex, uh, age, disability, those sorts of things, and religion. And, and how does it operate? In other words, how does it how does it do that? In other words, what's its, what's it, what, what, is it, what are its powers to do that? The primary way that it does it is that when an employee feels like he or she has been discriminated against in hiring or any other terms or conditions of employment, that employee goes to the EEOC and files a charge of discrimination. The EEOC investigates the charge. If the EEOC believes that discrimination has occurred, the EEOC will try to conciliate the charge, and if not, the EEOC can bring a lawsuit, or the individual can bring a lawsuit themselves. And as I recall from my days litigating these type of cases, um, they they give you a letter, the, the go sue letter. We That's call right. That, right, right to sue notice. Right to sue notice. So, um, so either the EEOC does it, or they allow the person who is aggrieved to do it uh, after their after their investigation. Um, so, also, the commissioners themselves can file these charges as well. And how many commissioners are there? There are five commissioners. All right. And, um, well, let's, I, I want to talk about uh, religious discrimination because we were, we were just discussing um, during the pandemic, there was an enormous amount of um, what we would say arbitrary and capricious um, regulation of houses of worship when similarly situated uh, Houses of non-worship were uh, yeah, like casinos were open and churches were closed yeah, and that kind of thing. We were so talking I to remember, Eric Dryband about that. Yeah. So, um, the, what's your take on how the EOC does religious discrimination? I think they issued a new a new guidance on this. Yes, when I was at the EEOC, the the EEOC did issue new religious discrimination guidance. Um, the EEOC does not have the authority under Title VII to do substantive rulemaking, but it, do, it does issue guidance. And that guidance ends up being pretty powerful because employers feel like they're supposed to follow it. Uh, I don't know, I, I have the impression from things I've heard that the uh, 
some of the EEOC are not very happy with the religious discrimination guidance. So we worked really hard to make it reflect what the law actually is. For some reason... When the lemon test still existed. Pardon me? When the lemon test still existed. That's exactly right. <laughs> um, it, my impression is that the EEOC has historically done a very good job in protecting people from race discrimination and sex discrimination, but it has historically done a less impressive job in protecting people from religious discrimination, which is not to say that it has not brought those cases and it hasn't done a good job. You might remember the Abercrombie case that got to the Supreme Court. That was a religious discrimination case back in 2015. It was a very good case. Tell us about that. Um, that was a case where a, a woman, uh, a Muslim woman needed to wear a hijab and Abercrombie didn't want to hire her because of that. The clothing and, store, Abercrombie and Fitch? That's right. Okay. And so she, she wasn't hired and that case went all the way to the Supreme Court and I think it was a unanimous decision or maybe eight to one. Um, the court said, you know, that's, that's illegal discrimination. She has to be permitted to uh, wear this because her religion requires it. With religious discrimination, unlike these other forms of discrimination, it's not only that the employer has to treat people equally and that the, the employer has to protect people from severe or pervasive harassment, but in the religious context, the law said, says that the employer must provide reasonable accommodations if it's not an undue hardship to the employer. And in that situation, it just simply was not an undue hardship to the employer to, to permit that woman to wear this clothing that her religion required her to wear. So my point is, yes, the EEOC has done on some occasions a good job bringing these cases, but there have been many fewer of them and there have been exceeding few brought on behalf of Christian employees who have been discriminated against because of their beliefs related to anything related to the human body, uh, sexual morality, um, abortion, things of that nature, people who have been discriminated, discriminated against for holding opinions or voicing opinions or being unwilling to say something that violates their religious beliefs. I have not seen the EEOC bringing those cases until the Kroger case, which we brought when I was there. And the, the, um, District Court in Arkansas recently um, denied Kroger's motion for summary judgment in that case. And I don't, to my knowledge, it has not been resolved yet. And I, I did just look up the Abercrombie case, seven to two, Scalia wrote the opinion. Okay. Uh, and Alita filed an opinion concurring in the judgment. So that's more like eight to one and Thomas uh, concurred in part and dissented in part. So I think you're right. It was almost 9-0, kind of eight one. It was a good case. Yeah. And what's the Kroger case? The Kroger case is a case where two employees, one was a cashier at the grocery store, one was a deli worker, um, two women who had worked there, one eight years and one 12 years, um, objected to wearing what they understood to be an LGBTQ pride emblem on their aprons. The company had just been through an LGBTQ pride campaign and then it issued these navy blue aprons with a colored rainbow symbol that these women believed uh, were expressions of LGBTQ pride, and they both said uh, separately that for religious reasons, they could not wear that apron. One asked if she could buy her own navy blue apron without that uh, emblem and wear it, and she was fired uh, instead of being accommodated. And the other asked if she could simply put her name tag over it, and she was fired. There was no suggestion anywhere that these women had harassed any person based on their sexual orientation or gender identity. 
but simply that they had religious beliefs that pro prohibited them from expressing pride about this and they were fired. And to me, that was just a, a classic good case that the EEOC should bring and, and that we did bring. Unfortunate and, incident, but good facts yeah, for your purposes. Very, very good facts. And I hear these types of cases all the time. I'm, I'm working on a case right now uh, against Alaska Airlines where uh, two employees, the employees had all been invited to comment on the employer's statement that they were supporting the Equality Act. And a couple of employees raised religious concerns that they had um, about the act, removing religious def defenses for, for people and other concerns they had about perhaps not protecting women. One of them brought that up. And they were summarily discharged. And this is just something, this is the new blatant discrimination that's happening all over the country. I cannot tell you how many of these kinds of cases I hear about all the time. And I have seen the EEOC really dragging its feet about this. And I, I don't understand why. I think part of the reason is there, there's a fear that this is somehow gonna be in tension with their need to protect people from discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. But I feel very strongly that in this pluralistic society, we know how to do this. We know how to protect people in both of these categories. We know how to be disagreed with and treat people respectfully. And the EEOC should be leading the way in showing that this can be done. And how about private parties? Are these cases being brought by private parties? They are. I have seen several that have been brought by people who um, have had some sort of test that they have to take. They go to some DEI training program, diversity, equity, inclusion training program, and then they're required to pass some kind of quiz at the end that states things that contrary to their religious beliefs about um, sexuality. Yeah, and marriage. so they, they, can't, they can't complete the test. And I, there was one case where somebody was first fined $1,000 and then fired. Uh, these things are coming up a lot and employees do not know what to do. They don't know where to turn and, and they're afraid. And there was a yeah. flight attendant at Southwest who just won, I think, I $5 million that. or something like that it. for wrongful termination for sharing her pro-life views. Do you get, do you get, um, and, and the one thing about the civil rights law is you get your attorney's fees. That's uh, if, you, if you win. Thank goodness. That's uh, how, that's how I make my living. <laughs> <laughs> I've me too for a little while. So I, I do think though that, um, does the EOC issue right to sue letters on oh, these yes. if you bring them? It's not, not slowing up that process. Oh, no. The EEOC will issue a right to sue letter to anybody if it doesn't go forward with the case. Absolutely. Well, that's good. There's not. Absolutely. Okay. Um, well, I, I do think that the, um, that the EEOC is an important uh, agent in all this and has been for a long time. So perhaps they will uh, look into these cases in the future uh, a little more. But I guess, I guess, I think you're probably right that they feel wrong-footed uh, wrong-footed about, um, well, look, if, if, if X employee believes this religiously and X employee believes that's discrimination on the basis of sex or, or identity or whatever it is, how do we adjudicate those? And you're right, there, there is a way to do it, but I bet you there's a little fear about moving I forward. I think there's a lot of fear, and I think it, it has to do with one being more politically correct than the other right now. Um, but 
it, these things are not impossible to navigate. We simply do not allow our employees to harass each other for because of their religion or because of their sex or sexual orientation. We don't permit harassment and we don't permit our managers to discriminate and wh whom they promote or anything like that. That's the way you do it. You just enforce the law and, and you say to your employees, yes, you're going to disagree with people and people are going to disagree with you. Welcome to America. Well, and there isn't a First Amendment right to free speech in the workplace. People forget that sometimes. But your employer can tell you, you know what, you just keep that to yourself, keep that to yourself, and then there's less uh, less to be worried about. I think that's, that's the Netflix standard now, right? Apparently. Anyway, they, so, uh, well, it was great having you here. Thank you.